Every Day is Earth Day is supported by Minnesota Valley Federal Credit Union with two locations in Mankato since 1934. It pays to bank where your part owner member NCUA more at mnvalleyfcu.coop. And Every Day is Earth Day is also supported by members of the Executive Board of the South Central Minnesota Clean Energy Council. Find out more at smcleanenergy.org. Good morning. Joining me now, I've got James Wolfen, who is with Sustainable Land Care and Turf Alternatives of Metro Blooms. And it's great to have you on the show today. I know you're also involved with the Lawns to Legumes program. Good morning, Karen. Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, I do do some work with uh, the Lawns to Legumes program. Me and some other folks at Metro Blooms, we help to run a lot of the education and technical assistance associated with running that statewide program. What is Lawns to Legumes for those who aren't familiar with it? So Lawns to Legumes is a statewide program in the state of Minnesota that seeks to help residents convert their traditional turf grass lawns to something just a little bit more pollinator friendly. So we uh, encourage the use of native pollinator friendly species. It's just a program that provides both resources as well as uh, funds, money, to help with these lawn conversions. Why should somebody yeah, care about a pollinator, and- James? Because a lot of people may say, well, I hate bees because they sting me or whatever. What's, why yeah, are yeah. they important? This is something that I'm happy to answer. It's a question I get all the time. And I think what most people point to off the bat, and it's super important, is the value that pollinators have towards uh, food security. So a stat that gets thrown around a lot is that one in three bites you take comes from pollination from bees. This is correct to an extent where how dependent each specific crop within that one out of three bites, it varies where something like an almond is completely dependent on bee pollination, but something like an apple, they would still exist without our pollinators. We just wouldn't have nearly as many apples. Yields would go way down. So, of course, their value to our crop production, where your produce aisles, they wouldn't be recognizable without our pollinators. Apples, watermelon, different peppers, so many of those species are dependent on uh, pollination from insects like bees and all their little critter friends. An argument that I'm trying to bring more and more light to is just the value that bees provide to preserving our natural landscapes where when you go through a walk through a national park or a walk through your garden, or even just a walk down your block, so many of those flowering plants are pollinated by our pollinator species. Where if you wanna have beautiful trees and the beautiful understory plants that grow uh, beneath them, so many of those wouldn't exist if it weren't for our pollinators. I think to get exact on it, I believe it's about 88% of our flowering plants are dependent on pollination by animals. So that is so much plant diversity that we would lose without our pollinators. So in addition to food, which of course is important, which is easy to tie a dollar figure to, about 20 billion if we want to go there, but also this plea for our, you know, just preserving the beauty of our landscapes. And, you know, even outside of that, I think that there's just a beauty to diversity in life and wildlife, where a more diverse wildlife, a more diverse group of insects just makes for a more beautiful planet. Of course, I am probably biased here as an entomologist and a conservationist, but I think just the fact that we're helping out something that exists in our world, I'd hope that would be enough. But if it's not, protect your food, protect your landscapes. I know one of the key pollinators that you are targeting is the rusty patch bumblebee. Would you tell me a little bit about that and why it's so important? Absolutely. We definitely place an emphasis on the rusty patch bumblebee. And the reason for that is the rusty patch bumblebee is an endangered species. That's a pretty key and historic thing where the rusty patch bumblebee is the first bee species to be named to the endangered species list in the continental United States. 
And a little bit of history on the rusty patch bumblebee is that um, it used to be very common in the United States, common in north central Minnesota, common in much of the Midwest and really north central United States, out through the east coast all the way down parts of the southeast United States. But in the past 20 years or so, we've seen populations decline in excess of 90%. So this is a bee species that really needs our help. What's lucky for us as Minnesotans is that the rusty patch bumblebee still has strong populations here in Minnesota. So that means that when we introduce green habitat, when we install green plantings, we have this unique opportunity to conserve an endangered species. Why is that bee important? I mean, there's so many insects who have probably gone extinct, and for some reason this one's very important. Why? So bumblebees are kind of used to take the temperature of native bees on the whole, where it's easy for us to study honeybees because they're managed. They're kind of more like a domesticated species. Bumblebees and native bees on the whole are much more difficult to study. Like you said, they're so small, they're so kind of uh, ubiquitous where it's where it's difficult to keep track of them. Bumblebees, however, they're a little larger, they're a little bit more, they're just a little bit e easier to manage and study. Think of the rusty patch bumblebee as kind of a barometer for where we, we're at in terms of bee health on the whole, where this idea that the rusty patch bumblebee is struggling and really needs our help, this isn't something that's unique to the rusty patch. It really can be applied to many of the native bee species out there. So a lot of these, um, suggestions, land management strategies that we recommend to residents to kind of help out the rusty patch bumblebee. These same strategies are really beneficial to a lot of our native pollinators, native bees. So kind of think of the rusty patch bumblebee as, of course, it's a very important species that we wish to conserve, but also kind of like a mascot for pollinator and bee conservation. I was one of the recipients of a lawns to legume a couple of years ago and installed a shoreline buffer pollinator garden and I had so many rusty patch bumblebees and they were identified as them. And so I was just thrilled to see them and think that I may have had a little role in doing that. What are some important things we, meaning anyone who's listening to this broadcast, can do simple steps to make sure that we are protecting some of these important pollinators? Yeah, so what's lucky for us is that the rusty patch bumblebee is a generalist species, meaning it's not too picky about what flowers you uh, put out into the landscape. It's more so about just bringing that native uh, pollinator habitat, those native prairie plants back to our landscapes. Where if we go back just about a hundred years or so, Minnesota was full of these beautiful diverse prairies. In the past 100, 120 years, we're down to about 2% of the native prairie coverage that we used to have here in Minnesota. So of course, we're never gonna return to that prairie coverage we once had. Human development is something that, you know, we're not just gonna turn our backs on. But the resolution that we have is if we could just bring a small piece of that prairie back into the landscapes we manage, back into your front or backyards, you could go a long way in helping those bee populations that really need our help. If there are some species that I would really want to highlight, bee ball, monarda, an absolute favorite of the rusty patch bumblebee. Um, the researchers at the University of Minnesota, if I could highlight two, um, Michelle Boone and Elaine Evans, they do a lot of work tracking the rusty patch bumblebee where it is, where it isn't, and what species they see it on, they really uh, see quite a few sightings on Monarda, on bee balm. Of course, and also try to be uh, just good stewards of your landscape. When you're thinking about site preparation or maintenance, sometimes people's first thought is to go and grab the herbicide to either take care of that weed or prepare my new landscape, prepare my new garden. Oh, yeah. I like to preach the mindset, I guess you could say, that the use of herbicides should be our absolute last resort. If you've exhausted all other options, then yes, maybe try to consider using a very specific chemical at the uh, specified rates. 
but always try to exhaust all other options before resorting to those herbicides. Well, this is the time of year when I, when lawn care is a big deal, and I see so many of the trucks out doing treatments, whether it's adding fertilizer, whether it's adding herbicides, uh, things to kill all the, the weeds coming up. And it's just so prevalent. In fact, I see the leftovers are spread all over the sidewalk on the roadway, and it seems to me a lot of that is, is a lot of waste and goes down our drains and pollutes our water streams. So what do you tell people? I mean, they're, they're used to doing that, and the I don't know that there's any regulation for those companies to try to, you know, sweep up after themselves so it doesn't go down the drain, for example? Yeah, that's a good question. It's honestly a pretty uh, bulky question where you could go a lot of different directions. Something that people might not be aware of is the tremendous leaders that we have at the Turfgrass Science Lab at the University of Minnesota, where there tends to be all this kind of bad blood, you could say, directed towards turfgrass and turfgrass science. But the research that they're doing at that lab can really improve the green footprint that's associated with turf grass, where I think people don't realize how much species selection matters in the world of turf grass. So Kentucky bluegrass is kind of the traditional species that's used in lawns. It's super high input, meaning that you have to mow it often, you have to fertilize it often, you have to water it pretty frequently. Fine fescue, by comparison, is much more easy to manage, much lower input. It doesn't have nearly the same water requirement. You don't have to fertilize nearly as often. There are even um, subspecies, uh, cultivars of fine fescue that are what's called allelopathic, where they can, they're better at fighting off weed pressure. So that kind of uh, reduces the need for a lot of those inputs you're talking about. People that apply fertilizers, fine fescue doesn't need nearly as much nitrogen. In fact, here in Minnesota, we have pretty uh, healthy soils for the most part. Something else that, that I learned from the Hort Department and being a turf grass science student was that before you add something to your soil, spend $15, $20 and get a soil test. Then you'll know exactly what you need. Where you know you, you see people with these huge contracts with their lawn care companies, both residents and commercial management, and they're spending all this money to have that crystal clear lawn, but they don't even know what their lawn needs and what they're putting into it. So a soil test can go such a long way in helping you determine what your lawn needs to be healthy. So I think a soil test, that $15, $20 investment will save you so much money in the long run. And species selection will really help reduce the environmental burden associated with your law. But you know, you mentioned a soil test. Those companies aren't necessarily going to look at that and adjust, are they? If you have some contracted, whether it's one of these green whatever companies, do they look at that? I mean, it seems like they kind of have a one size fits all. So it probably varies from provider to provider, where you know, the more pressure that we as residents put on these contractors, then the more options that there are that exist. I would imagine that 10 years ago, there weren't turf grass landscapers who were offering bee lawn installations, but now more and more we see those popping up. And I think um, now we're also starting to see more of this kind of like a precision ag mindset. So of course this isn't quite agriculture. You could consider turf grass agriculture, but this idea of not doing one size fits all land care, uh, designing land care plans that fit the, the needs of your specific landscape. So it's kind of one of those things where we have to make a grassroots effort, create the demand for this. And as a result, the suppliers are gonna have to meet our needs. So you mentioned fine fescue. Can I go in a store and find fine fescue or will I have to search that out? Let's say I wanna not just go all Kentucky bluegrass. Maybe I wanna mix so I have some of that other stuff in there, including 
maybe mini clovers or things like that. Do I have to request that specifically? Because I think that's part of it. Maybe it's not easy enough or people don't know what to ask for. I would say that now you should be able to find fine fescue just about everywhere. Um, I know, so for me, I always go local. So it's harder for me to speak to the big box stores like uh, Home Depot, Lowe's, et cetera, Menards. But I know that uh, I'm always doing work with Twin City Seed, which is a uh, metro-based company, but they go through so much fine fescue, you wouldn't believe. Minnesota Native Landscapes, I believe they carry it as well. And even uh, more local providers like uh, Mother Earth Gardens. But I think it's something that is only becoming more and more prevalent. I've done a few walks through the big box stores and I'll often see it marketed as um, a shade tolerant mixture. So fine fescue is actually first used because of its shade tolerance. So it does great in both full sun and full shade. And that's why it originally uh, came to prominence. But uh, the more research we do on these turf grass options, the more we find that it also has uh, fantastic value due to its low input nature. So if you see a turf grass blend that's marketed as low input or shade tolerant mix, flip it around, check the back, and it's more than likely going to have some fine fescue species included. One thing I've been incorporating into my lawn is what's called mini clover. Every time I Mm -hmm. hand dig out a dandelion, I put a few mini clover seeds in there. Is that going to be beneficial to pollinators? You'll be hard pressed to find a more, a bigger advocate for clover, specifically Dutch white clover than myself. So I did a lot of research with this species for almost 10 years now, where uh, here in Minnesota, we've seen over 50 bee species that use Dutch white clover as a forage source. This includes both honeybees, which are kind of its own little corner of science, but also tons and tons of wild bee species. That's good for greater than 10% of the bees that we have in all of Minnesota. So it really uh, goes to show you the power of making one small change, where if you just add in a little bit of Dutch white clover into your lawn, and in some cases it's already there and you just go as far as to not remove it, you'll be conserving greater than 10% of the bees in Minnesota. It has extremely high quality resources. Now we're touching a little on my the work I did as an undergrad, where the pollen that uh, is present in Dutch white clover has a really high protein content, which is really important for helping bees mature and develop. And it's got uh, nectar with a really high sugar content, which of course bees need for energy. So uh, Dutch white clover, mini clover, fantastic to include within a lawn. I think a lot of it depends on how people will be able to adjust to not seeing what's considered to be the perfect golf course lawn and and say it's okay to have some clover in there. And the nice thing I like about it is because when your turf grass goes dormant in the summer, which it naturally does, that that will stay green and you'll still have a green soft lawn. Yeah, I do think that a lot of this is about uh, changing community perceptions. Something that I've said I don't even know how many times is I don't know how we as people as community Uh, we're convinced that a green carpet is more beautiful than a lawn that's full of color and full of life. So I don't think it's going to be too, too hard to uh, get people to rally behind this idea. What I have found is that signage and conversations can go such a long way, where if people see some spotty flowers in in your lawn, they might assume that you're a non-attentive homeowner. They might not understand why these flowers are present. But signage that says this is for pollinator health and even to an extent for uh, improving water quality and conversations with your neighbors can go such a long way into uh, overhauling our perceptions and our mindset towards turf grass. What about weeds? People don't want the weeds in their lawn. What do you tell them? 
So, so much of that is subjective and personal perception where uh, going back to my, uh, um, when I did my master's, I actually wrote uh, an article that was all, that was just entitled uh, Reconsidering the Weed. And it's kind of this idea that a flower in a lawn is only a weed if you perceive it as a weed, where dandelion, clover, so many of the flowers that are common within lawns provide forage to our pollinators, which means that they have value, you know, of course, pollinators, but that has implications up, down, and across our food webs. So if you see a flower in a lawn and you say, this is food for my pollinators, this is going to help the birds and butterflies and small mammals and everything in between, then that flower is no longer a weed. Of course, there are some invasives that you might want to exclude. I've had my run-ins and my fair share of losses trying to, to manage uh, Creeping Charlie. But something that is more so uh, naturalized, where it's not going to outcompete the native plants that you put in your yard, or it's not going to, you know, completely overtake yours and your neighbor's landscapes, something like a Dutch white clover or, um, or a potentilla, uh, those are species that I wouldn't personally worry about too much. Well, I've heard that the Creeping Charlie doesn't have the high quality of pollen that, for example, the, the white Dutch clover does. So if you're going to do something, will the clovers maybe outdo the Creeping Charlie so you could push them out that way? Because a lot of people want to get rid of the Creeping Charlie. Oh, believe me, I wish the clover could outcompete oh, it can't. the Creeping okay. Charlie. But uh, Creeping Charlie is the, it's the gold medal winner if there was a weed Olympics where it's going to be the last man standing nine out of ten times. It is as hardy and resilient a weed as you can get your hands on. It's a bear to deal with. There's There's some good articles out there about how to try and control it and its value to pollinators. I would say if you've got the means to replace it, Try, try and replace it with something that's going to supply more consistent rewards for pollinators. Is it not as nutritious for the pollinators? That's what I've heard. Yeah, yeah. So what you've heard is correct, where it actually has a super interesting kind of a reward allocation strategy, the way it distributes rewards to pollinators, which unfortunately is really interesting to study, but not so great for our pollinators. So it goes by what's called the jackpot theory, where the vast majority of the flowers are very low in their nectar concentration and the quality of that nectar. But every so often you'll run into a flower that's just booming with this really high quality nectar. I kind of like to equate it to uh, doing a pull tab at your local bar, where for the most part, you're pulling those pull tabs and they're mostly losers. But every now and then you get that winner and it gives you that big rush of energy. You think, oh my goodness, these are the best. I have to go buy every pull tab in the bar. I'm gonna be rich. And that's kind of what happens to the pollinators. Most of them are losers, but when they get to that flower that's full of energy, it sends them this false signal that Creeping Charlie is a great flower. I should keep on forging on it to get these rewards. But in reality, bees only get a slight energy gain from visiting uh, Creeping Charlie on average because of how inconsistent its reward allocation is. Where by comparison, Dutch white clover, even dandelion, it's going to be a consistent, positive uh, experience for the bee. They're getting lots of energy, getting lots of protein from the pollen. So, you know, it's not the worst thing in the world. It's better than nothing, I guess. But if you're specifically trying to manage your landscapes for pollinators, you can do much, much better than Creeping Charlie. We're talking with James Wolfen, who is with Metro Blooms and a pollinator conservationist. That's his background. And we're talking all things pollinators today and what we can do in our yards. You had mentioned earlier that the Monarda is a good flower. A lot of people now are, are purchasing plants 
from their local greenhouses. What are some other things that we can put in our yards besides Bernarda that might be really great for the pollinators and also attractive to the yard? So I want to kind of touch this from a few angles where to me, even more so than specifically which species you use, there's kinds of some uh, principles or philosophies that I like to think about. So the first is just creating a diverse landscape. This is both in flower shapes and sizes, but what I think is really important is uh, bloom times. So here I'm gonna actually tie this right back to the rusty patch bumblebee. So the rusty patch bumblebee isn't an early season bee, nor is it a late season bee, nor a middle season bee. It is an all seasons bee, where once it gets warm in April, it's out and it's foraging, and it'll be out looking for food all the way through here in Minnesota, probably through October, uh, where it'll go dormant and essentially hibernate. With that being the case, the rusty patch bumblebee needs constant access to year-round forage. So what I like to tell gardeners is when you're creating a garden, um, I would hope that they could include at least two early season bloomers, two mid-season bloomers, and two late season bloomers. This will ensure that the rusty patch bumblebee and all of its bee friends have constant access to forage. So I talk about bees a ton. What I'm trying to do is kind of uh, diversify my knowledge around pollinators. So a specific species that I try to encourage people to include is Leatris. I love Leatris, and me, even more important than me loving Leatris is that monarch butterflies love it. It's also so known course, as bla Blazing Star. I've heard it called Gay Feather as well, so a couple different names. Yeah, yeah, I should have said Blazing Star. Sometimes the student in me or something in me uh, reverts back to the Latin names. But yeah, Blazing Star, Leatris, and yeah, a great species for monarch butterflies. So of course, I think that most people, especially listeners of this show, will know about the relationship between milkweed and monarchs, where uh, it's the host plant. It's where the monarchs lay their eggs. It's what the larvae, the caterpillars are going to eat. Monarchs also need those, you know, kind of pit stops on their migration journey to stop at a flower, get some nectar, continue on their journey. And uh, the Leatris, the blazing stars, are a fantastic uh, forage source for the monarchs. Some of my other favorites, I definitely want to shout out the asters. Late season bloomers are a little bit hard to come by and asters, especially like a, like a New England aster, a native flower with great rewards that blooms really late into the season. One of the things I did is I've got, I got one of those pre-planned gardens through Prairie Nursery. And I know there's also, that's in Wisconsin, there's also Prairie Moon Nursery mm -hmm. in Minnesota. And a lot of times they'll have those pre-planned pollinator gardens and they do include those early blooming, middle blooming and late bloomers. So that's one way you can ensure to get that full range to feed the pollinators all season long. So it's, it's sort of a, I guess, an easy way to do it if you don't know what you're doing essentially, which is what I did. Yeah, yeah. And that's kind of a trend that we're seeing, believe it or not, around the country. Where I was recently at a conference where um, there were speakers from uh, one of the National Garden Associations. And they told us that one of the uh, biggest pressures right now in the gardening industry on the whole is this demand for pollinator-friendly flowers and pollinator-friendly designs. So as long as we kind of keep up this pressure, it's going to uh, mirror itself when you're working with landscape designers and native plant providers. So I think this is a trend that's only going to continue, where now we're not just thinking about aesthetics when it comes to designing and planting. We're thinking about how can we best serve our bees, our pollinators, our wildlife. So I think, yeah, you're going to see lots of uh, bee mixes out there, and they should include early, middle, and late-season bloomers. Is the Lawn to Legumes program still available to people where you get that grant to help you install a pollinator garden and you get some, some money as well as putting in your own, of course? Is that still going on or has that been put on hold? Great question. Yeah. So this funding comes from uh, NTREF, which is uh, funded by our Minnesota State Lottery. 
all the more reason to keep doing your pull tabs. I think that goes to uh, Entref. So that was a program that kind of went through a pilot phase in uh, 2020. So it was passed in 2019, and we had our first year of grants in 2020. So we were able to distribute about 850 grants, which uh, has resulted in hundreds of thousands of square feet of planting so far. We're still uh, waiting for those reimbursements. But, but th those funding rounds have closed. So right now, lawns to legumes is actually something that's being discussed by state legislators. And we're expecting a decision probably within the next month or so. So if this sounds like a program that means a lot to you as a Minnesotan, you want to see kind of a greener uh, Minnesota that's safe and uh, tasty for our pollinators, I definitely encourage you to reach out to your local legislators, reach out to your local council members, representatives, and uh, let them know that this is a policy that's important to you. I I'm appreciate you saying that because now is the time to do it before while they're still in session. Anything you'd like to leave us with in terms of if people want more information about pollinators or establishing some more edibles or landscaping for the pollinators, where can they go? Uh, Metro Blooms and Blue Thumb, we do workshops all about how to better manage your landscapes. So there's three that we're offering this year a resilient yards workshop, which touches on all sorts of landscape management decisions that, that a resident might have to make. Here, we definitely touch on native plantings and how to uh, conserve pollinators, but we also talk a ton about managing water, where stormwater runoff is a tremendous issue here in Minnesota. I believe the fact is that more than 50% of our lakes here in Minnesota are considered contaminated. So we talk a lot about both pollinator conservation, but also managing water in that workshop. Uh, we also offer bee lawn workshops, where if you want to have not that boring turf grass lawn, but something that's a mix of some flowers and some grass, a bee lawn workshop is a great opportunity for you to learn more about that. And we also have a planting for pollinators workshop, which includes much of the teachings of the Lawn Slagging's program. Uh, it's great for that resident who wants to learn, how can I manage a landscape in my own yard to better protect pollinators. The workshops are listed on the Blue Thumb website. There are fees. The vast majority of these are hosted by cities. I'm doing one tonight in Mendota Heights and, uh, and it's $15 to attend. That being said, we do have some options out there for uh, residents who might not have the spare $15 where you can uh, message the Blue Thumb hotline about that if that's a concern to you. But uh, yeah, we've got workshops going uh, all through April, all through May, and some more scattered throughout the spring and summer. I'd highly encourage you to, to attend if you want to learn how to manage your landscapes. And what is that website, James? Bluethumb.org. Well, I want to thank you for your time and sharing all your information. We're talking with James Wolfen with the Metro Blooms and also a pollinator conservationist and just a, a guy that's helping spread the gospel of saving our pollinators. <laughs> we want to thank you again and, and happy Earth Week, by the way. Yeah, happy Earth Week. Go out there and plant something green. Absolutely. Or purple or orange. Heck yes, thank you so much. Every Day is Earth Day is supported by Minnesota Valley Federal Credit Union with two locations in Mankato since 1934. It pays to bank where your part owner member NCUA more at mnvalleyfcu.coop. And Every Day is Earth Day is also supported by members of the Executive Board of the South Central Minnesota Clean Energy Council. Find out more at smcleanenergy.org.